The fear isn't that Pardu has gotten the solution to the mystery wrong, or even that everyone seems to believe him. The fear is that the author, that Robert Coover himself, seems to believe a solution which you as the reader knows is impossible. It's as if you've experienced something he didn't. And so you have this secret knowledge that only you have, and it's a lonely thing, it's a scary thing. Hello, and welcome back to Revisiting Smith's Point, the rewatch podcast where I take you episode by episode through the 70s sitcom gem. Welcome to episode 2. Today we'll be investigating season 1, episode 2, The Great Book Caper. I'll begin by giving a brief synopsis of the episode, followed by some production information, and then an introduction to our focal point for the figurative discourse of this episode. Season 1, Episode 2. The synopsis is this. When Essie Harris realizes her book is missing its last couple pages, she enlists Luke, Sabrina, and her classmate Molly to help her find them. Meanwhile, a fussy librarian accuses Essie of ruining the book herself, and CJ tries to clear his sister's name. This episode was written by Sybil Edelman and directed by Moira Armstrong, who had previously directed for Bill Craig on his show The Borderers. Armstrong also directed for Testament of Youth, Body and Soul, Michael's Crossing, and The Guardians. The Borderers was a historical drama set in the 16th century. It concerned a family living on the border between Scotland and England, and it's figuratively tied to this episode's interest in mystery in its archival status. Eleven out of the 26 episodes produced are considered lost. Sybil Edelman was one of the non-theatrical writers Bill Craig brought in, and also the writer who would go on to have the most public career in television after Smith's Point. Born in Winnipeg, Canada, Sybil Edelman, eventually Sybil Edelman Sage, would in her later career also write satirical essays and compose mosaics. Edelman's episodes were typically the most symmetrically structured and the most traditional out of the writers, and she took a special interest in the women of Smith's Point. You'll see both this symmetry and this focus in The Great Book Caper, which is an essay-centered episode. Of note is that, despite this symmetricality of structure, Edelman's script does indeed leave several things unresolved, both interpersonally and in the figurative world of the show. With that said, I'll give you something to look out for in this episode. Keep an eye on which mysteries are solved and which ones aren't. To further contextualize, narratives of this time, and particularly the narratives that the writers were engaging with at this time would interact with the structure of mystery and especially with the notion of the great unsolvable mystery. And we can look at the ending, which is not necessarily the solution of the mystery, as a temperature taker for the time. A great microcosm for this is 
Oedipamas of The Crying of Lot 49, published in 1965, versus Maul Robbins of Running Dog, which was published in 1978. There are spoilers for both of these books to follow. The end of The Crying of Lot 49, Oedipa is sort of gutted by this experience of trying to solve the great mystery, and she's left waiting at an auction for the answer, or more so for a concrete indicator towards an answer. And the book ends, she's left forever waiting. The lot is 49, it's not 50, which is the Pentecostal number, and so she, and by extension we, will never reach the flaming tongues, the answer will always be one short. In Running Dog, by contrast, Maul Robbins essentially loses interest in the mystery of the film she's trying to track down, which is a pornographic film featuring Hitler, and disappears from the novel until its last scenes. And this atrophy, this ennui, Don DeLillo has commented, is sort of a reflection of the disenfranchisement and disinterest of the late 1970s. So we can turn to these solutions or non-solutions as a sort of intense indicator of the feeling of the culture at the time. Something of note, in most of these stories there is a question as to the very existence of the mystery. Perhaps Oedipa is just insane, perhaps there is no such film as the one Maul is after. This is not the case for this episode of Smith's Point, naturally. The show was a family show, it had not yet begun to delve so existentially, even in subtle ways, into structural questions of that nature. In fact, none of the mysteries of this episode are particularly existential, but because of the lens we're applying to Smith's Point, I felt it relevant to speak in such depth of this notion. As always, we'll assume purpose for everything, including mistakes. Mistakes are often intentional, in Smith's point, and the exception to this is the acknowledged continuity errors. There's a gray area to be addressed in regards to this with this episode, an acknowledged continuity error that could also, knowing what we know about Bill Craig in the historical and cultural context of the show, be read as a sort of sly meta-commentary by him, a jab. And this is The Animals. The first episode features Jammies the dog and Esther the cat. And of course, neither of them appear ever again in person or in reference. Bill Craig has gone on the record. I believe it was addressed explicitly during one of his later appearances on The Glen Wet Show that this was an error, and they didn't address it because the animals were so difficult to work with. Furthermore, Craig mentioned that there was no real way to explain their absence that wasn't a bit maudlin, and for this reason they chose not to comment on it. This said, given the infamy of the Brady Bunch's animal-related continuity error, which was also tied to the pilot episode of that series, the wrinkle in the narrative world of Smith's point in regards to the animals could be read as a sort of jab at the Brady Bunch, which was 
in some ways intended to be Smith's Point spiritual sister. At least that was ABC's initial conception for funding the project. As I've mentioned, the intention was to create a Brady Bunch for the East Coast. Also of note, obviously, is the cat's name, Esther, which is already the name of one of the characters on the show. This does point towards a sort of thoughtlessness being at play in the very inclusion of the animals, or potentially that the writers of the show did not originally intend for Essie's full name to be Esther, which this would discredit the notion that the children were all conceived as having biblical names. And so here, not unlike Oedipa or Maul, we're faced with this branching tree of possible answers. Let's speak more specifically of Cold Opens this episode. There's an interesting dramaturgical and figurative history to Cold Opens which intersects in a fascinating way with the sitcoms of the late 60s and early 70s. The term Cold Open can be broadly applied to the segment which occurs before the title sequence in a television show. Cold Opens more or less began with 1950s television serial dramas, in which the show would play an exciting clip from the middle of the episode to attract viewers. The clip itself would replay later, in the context of the episode after the title sequence. This practice was appropriated widely by situational comedies in the mid-1960s. These comedies would begin to outline the plot of the episode, usually in a very brief amount of time, to interest viewers and provide an overview for the story which was to follow, which excluded details of the series' conceit, because this was traditionally explained in the show's theme song. This practice sort of fell out of fashion, and then came back with the early to mid-2000s resurgence of situational comedies. These comedies, however, introduced an element of asymmetry into the cold open. Often it was a small joke that was unrelated to the plot of the episode. And so, historically, the cold open has strayed further and further away from the content of the narrative, which I think is indicative in many ways of a cultural tiredness, a sardonism, a, a movement towards postmodernism and towards post-postmodernism. What I find especially interesting about this is the juxtaposition of this narrative journey against the resurgence of popularity of the frame narrative in a post-9-11 East Coast. You look at extremely popular stories like Hamilton, like Wicked, and especially those localized in New York, and they all employ a frame narrative, which is in a way related to the cold open, to the origins of the cold open. Only in this case, you are getting a teaser of the ending, of the post-ending, in fact, which is a reassurance. And so there's a safety that's sort of neatly in conflict with the nihilism of the offices, cold opens, for example, which can be so unrelated to the narrative meat of the episode. Smith's point evoked the symmetrical method of cold open for most of its run. The opening set up the plot of the following episode, usually, as we've seen with episode one, with some sort of figurative imagery. 
These openings would become more and more obliquely related to the plot as the show progressed, but there are only two instances of total breakage from coherence with the story that's to follow, and these are in that sort of decaying last season, after Jude Taylor had left to work on Alice. The risk of becoming metafictional, which is something I hate, 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 I'll address the cold open of this show to further illustrate the point. I go back to the more traditional methodology of cold open. Before the theme, I play a clip from the episode which might be of interest to listeners, and then this clip is ultimately replayed in the context of the episode later. The cold open to the great book caper is as follows. Essie is in the sitting room of the do come in, reading the book which will become the central object of the plot. We don't get a very good view of it here, but we'll come to learn that it's called The Case of the Lost Lamplight by Marguerite Rassad. Marguerite Rassad is not an important part of the plot, and she's only mentioned once as the author of the book by Myrna the librarian, but she's of note in that I believe her last name is an anagram of Dura, which might make this a sort of hidden reference to French artist Marguerite Duras by Sybil Edelman. This would have been just one year after Duras publicly signed the Manifesto of the 343, which called for the legalization of abortion in France, so a very significant time to be paying homage to Duras. This is all speculation, of course, because the quality of my box set is not very good. It's difficult to make out the exact spelling of the name on the book prop. We'll later address Beckett and his lamplight, but in the interest of moving forward, I'll say that the case of the lost lamplight, in design and in the way people speak about it, seems to be a pretty straightforward stand-in for a Nancy Drew book. There is even a layer of mystery to those authorships because of the universal pen name the publishing company used. Essie is reading this book in the sitting room and eating generic chips out of a bag. This was before their sponsorship from Ditto's. She moves her hand in and out of the bag on a certain rhythm, stuffing her mouth full of chips and turning the pages. Some great acting here from Joan Lightfoot as she widens her eyes and chews ferociously. Joan Lightfoot's other most notable role would, interestingly enough, be another E character, this time the bit part of Elaine on Edge of Night. Eventually, and this is the joke of the opening, she runs out of chips, but she's so invested in the book that she doesn't notice and continues to move her hand in and out of the bag. Laugh track. Sabrina enters and begins to tidy up the room which in this case means dust the small oak coffee table parallel to the love seat. Essie exclaims, wait a minute, and the expectation is that she's noticed that she's run out of chips. Sabrina drops her duster in surprise and says, give me a warning next time. Laugh track. Essie looks at Sabrina and says, the ending's missing. Music. And we're into the theme song. The theme song plays. We'll speak specifically of the lyrics in a later episode, but for now I'll say that the theme song continued this popular trend of the time of explaining the conceit of the show and song. The interest in the theme song 
is the shots of Manchester by the Sea, which were all done on location under the supervision of Bill Craig. The exceptions to this are the shot of the house, both the interior shots and the exterior shots, which were filmed on a soundstage, and the shot of a lighthouse, which is actually the Eastern Point Lighthouse in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Scene one picks up the next morning, but narratively it follows immediately the cold open. In fact, this episode moves quite fast, which is partially a necessity as it furthers the multiple narrative structure of Smith's Point. You'll come to see that from this book, branch two narrative spines which have their own subplots. One involves the search for the lost pages, and the other involves the clearing of Essie's name. We'll get to that. So Luke, Essie, CJ, Melvin, and Anne Olivia are seated around the breakfast table. This is the first appearance of the kitchen, which serves as a sort of secondary dining room for the family when they're not entertaining guests. There is some sort of class commentary potentially tied to this, in that the kitchen, which is most frequented by Sabrina, Marjorie, and Virgil, is less ornate and less twee than the rest of the inn, and in fact we see that the appliances are quite old. This room will frequently serve as a meeting place and transitional area for the family and staff, far more so than the dining room, which is usually reserved in the show for more formal gatherings and events. There is a great and somewhat Chekhovian speaking of the Cherry Orchard Act too, exception to this in Season 2, Episode 1, Blue with Envy. We'll address that when we get to that episode. Essie is explaining the situation to Anne Olivia in full. Her mystery book is missing its last few pages and, by extension, the solution to the mystery. She's very anxious to find the missing pages because she wants to know what happened. Anne Olivia chastises her for being careless with a library book, which Essie protests, saying she's been careful and the pages must have been missing when she checked out the book. Sabrina, who is serving breakfast, it appears the breakfast is eggs and toast, suggests that maybe the pages fell out somewhere. It is, after all, an old book. She volunteers to look for them as she cleans the house that day. Melvin says Essie should check with the library. Perhaps they didn't mean to keep that copy in circulation, or maybe they have another copy. And Olivia says at the very least she should report the missing pages. Luke asks for the name of the book, and this is where we hear the title spoken for the first time, The Case of the Lost Lamplight, and he says he'll check the high school library to see if they have a copy. This is our first reference to the structure of the school system the children attend, and to Luke's age. Jack Neve looks and was quite young to be playing a high schooler. This casting was presumably done to subvert the issues sitcoms have with children aging out of roles, in that Luke is in high school for the entire run of the show, and it looks like he could conceivably be in high school for the entire run. Speaking of existential allegory, there's more to be explored in the decision to keep the children the same age for the whole show. 
which traps the family in sort of a perpetual and unending cycle of existence in which is inherent the death and rebirth of the episodic format already. In fact, were it not for the disparate threads of plot which run between episodes, an argument might be made that Smith's point exists in a world which only creates itself to be seen, which breaks apart and rebuilds itself each week for another turn of the merry-go-round, only to disintegrate when the eyes are gone. Had the show run longer, it would have been interesting to see how Bill Craig and the writers would or wouldn't have addressed the noticeable aging of the children. Would their characters develop at all, or would the physical and psychic worlds of Smith's Point find permanent breakage? Scene two begins immediately with a shot of a book display in the school library, reading November Reads to Warm the Chill, and featuring books stacked on an elaborate metal holding device, sort of like a candelabra for books, with books stacked on each side and some standing upright around the stacks. This device will become important to the plot later. There's a shot of Myrna the librarian, who was played in a guest appearance by Gillian Spencer. Spencer was a writer and actress known then for playing Robin Lang on the series Guiding Light. She would go on to act in As the World Turns, All My Children, and Bonanza, and write for General Hospital and Days of Our Lives. Her background in soap opera is made immediately transparent in her acting, which is somewhat melodramatic against the more subtle acting of the main cast. It appears that this was intentional, though, as the show wastes no time in establishing Myrna, who is given no last name, as a villain. There's a shot of Myrna chewing gum and stamping books with a ferocity, and Andy Park's score turns to a more plodding, comedic horn motif, which I hadn't mentioned this before. Andy Park also composed subsequent music for the show, in the form of frequent background themes, which were recycled to establish mood and location. Other composers and members of the music department would eventually be brought in for some episode-specific music, but most of the score in season one is composed by Park alone. Myrna is wearing a flannel jumper in red check and a brown turtleneck with big wire librarian glasses. She looks almost like a caricature of a librarian from the 1970s, a costume which comments on itself by its very existence. It's unclear who specifically was responsible for this costume, but the costume supervisor for the show was Kristen Brinkridge, and her name will appear in the world of the show in season three as the name of Rose McClellan's boss, which is to say it's clear that Kristen was popular with the writers. So Essie approaches Myrna, and there's a great point of view shot of just how small Essie looks from Myrna's eyes. She's barely taller than the desk. Essie puts the book on the desk and explains that the last couple pages are missing, and that she thinks there might have been a mistake, and she'd like to see if the library has another copy. Myrna does not react well to this news. She says, So you ruined the book, 
and Essie says no, she thinks the pages were missing when she checked out the book, which only upsets Myrna more. Myrna looks through the book and says that Essie is the second person to check out the book this year, the other being Molly Beeman, who had no complaint. She says she's going to charge Essie for the damage to the book and put a temporary hold on her library card until the fine is paid. Essie again protests her innocence and asks if the library has another copy, to which Myrna says they don't, and even if they did, Essie would still have to pay the fine before she could check out another book. This sets up a dual conflict for Essie. She has to figure out what happened to those pages and by extension how the book ends, and she has to find a way to pay the fine. Also of note here is a connection to another French playwright, Myrna Lamb, who had become known in the New York theater scene two years prior to this episode's release, and would in the two subsequent years be granted both a Guggenheim Fellowship and a Rockefeller Fellowship for the New York Shakespeare Festival. Perhaps a stretch, but with assumptions about Edelman's reference to Marguerite Dura, it is quite possible that Myrna was named after this writer. A brief comedy scene of Sabrina searching through Essie's room for the pages. The room is a bit messy, which is exclusive to this episode. Essie's room is otherwise very tidy, presumably to set a good example for children who might be watching the show. Also, it's implied later in this scene that the children typically clean their own rooms, which makes sense in terms of privacy and also ostensibly discipline in the sort of Christian austerity that many popular stories throughout history subscribe to. There is some fruit in the notion of unusual physical mess in the unsolvable mystery, particularly in the way it is a rejection of an expected neatness, both figuratively and literally. We'll note Essie's room as a central room of interest in two consecutive episodes now. Sabrina reaches under the bed, feels something, and pulls out a doll. Laugh track. This doll will reappear in Season 1, Episode 4, Rain, Rain Everywhere. She opens a drawer, rummages around, and removes the jester's hat. She puts it on. Laugh track. She searches through a pile of clothes and finds a candy bar. Sabrina glances around, sits on the bed, and begins to eat the candy bar. Laugh track. Anne Olivia passes by and says, Sabrina, what are you up to? And of course, Sabrina hops up, hides the candy bar, and begins a sort of exaggerated vaudeville form of searching. She tries to say, just looking for those pages, but her mouth is full. This is a bit that will reoccur, Anne Olivia catching Sabrina doing something she ought not be doing. However, it rarely leads to genuine conflict or animosity between the two, which is a consistent part of the navigation of the power dynamic between Sabrina and Anne Olivia by the writers. Anne Olivia says, Sabrina, in regards to Sabrina's mouthful of chocolate, and there's an expectation that she's about to chastise Sabrina, but instead she goes into the room conspiratorially and says, give me a piece and both women laugh as a laugh track plays over them. Anne Olivia then produces a brown paper package. Sabrina makes a joke that Anne Olivia shouldn't have, and Anne Olivia says she didn't, 
She found it under the couch in the sitting room. Both of them speculate what might be inside, and it becomes apparent that each of them thinks it might be a gift for her. And so, a new mystery is introduced. The props master and head of the art department of season one of Smith's Point was Aileen Morgan, who Bill Craig had brought over from Scotland after their previous collaboration on The Vital Spark, which was a comedy about a tugboat sailing the Argyle coast. Morgan and Craig's work on The Vital Spark would continue in a lesser capacity while they both worked on Smith's Point, and after season one, Morgan would leave to work full-time in Scotland. Her responsibilities would fall to Charles Creener, who a few years earlier had earned an Emmy nomination for his work on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. We return to the school, this time to the lunchroom, the set of which is mostly some picnic tables on an obvious soundstage, and unusually for this early on in the series, we are in media ray. CJ is expressing his outrage that Essie has been blamed for the missing pages. He says he'd like to give Myrna a piece of his mind, which dramaturgically feels like an idiom that shouldn't be accessible to someone so young, and which also introduces the notion of his character as a figure of violence, both figurative and physical. It's of note that this figure in the show named Cain, although again it's unclear if this naming is retconning by Bill Craig, is a destructive force. There's something biblical about it, obviously, something sort of tongue-in-cheek as well, very much in line with the mulligan stew finnegans wake connections. Essie reacts to CJ and says there's no need for him to get in trouble. She's more worried about the money. She's embarrassed to ask her parents for it. CJ tells her not to worry, and that he'll clear her name with both the librarian and with their parents. This is an unusual turning in of conflict towards the family structure, even obliquely. It is, of course, based on the false perception of Essie that her parents are angry with her about the missing pages, and CJ tells Essie that she only needs to worry about the money. And so already we see that the solution of the mystery is being contextualized out of relevance. CJ asks who the last person to read the book was, and Essie says it was Molly Beeman. And, as if by magic, a group of girls walk past, which includes Molly. CJ calls her over, and she breaks from the group. Molly Beeman is played by Vivian Sedan, who is the granddaughter of Ralph Sedan, a character actor who was quite famous at the time for playing bit parts in numerous movies. Among Ralph Sedan's filmography is Young Frankenstein, The Addams Family television series, and an uncredited role in The Wizard of Oz. Vivian Sedan didn't act very much before or after Smith's Point, and it seems her casting was a favor by casting director Kerwin Coughlin, who had previously cast Rolf in his reoccurring role on The Addams Family. He played Mr. Briggs, the mailman. Along with Smith's Point, Coughlin did casting for Mr. Ed, Petticoat Junction, I Love Lucy, The Beverly Hillbillies, and Lassie. Molly Beeman, of course, shares her first name and her initials with one of the most famous Irish literary figures, Molly Bloom, 
another Joycean character, and one inherently tied to the form of monologue, which will become relevant in her later scenes. Molly says that she's really sorry, but she doesn't even remember reading the case of the lost lamplight. She says she checked out a bunch of books from the mystery display Myrna had set up in the library for Halloween, but that she didn't have time to read them all. They conclude it may be possible that the book was missing its pages before Dolly checked it out. CJ leaves, but Dolly and Essie stay. This scene will pick up later. We move back into the kitchen. Sabrina is making coffee, and Anna Livia is reading. The brown paper package sits on the table, and there's an extended visual gag where when one of the women is distracted, the other will sneak a glance at the package. They look at each other suspiciously. We can't open it, says Anna Livia. Right, Sabrina agrees, and they both resume looking at the package in secret. Maybe just a peek, says Sabrina finally, and they get ready to open the package, only for Melvin to enter with the newspaper. This is something of an extension of the previous gag with Sabrina, only this time it is Sabrina and Anna Livia being caught doing something they aren't supposed to do. We'll see this conceit extend one step further later on in the scene. Melvin asks about the package, which sort of confirms his innocence and its existence. He offers that it might have been left by a previous guest, and maybe they should call up some of the people who had previously stayed in the hotel to see if they left something. There's a quick cut, which results in a visual gag based on a reversal of expectation. You think that the next shot will be the three of them calling about the package, but instead it's the three of them gathered around the package and Melvin about to open it with a butter knife. The conclusion of this caught-in-the-act gag comes here when Virgil enters and the three disperse clumsily. He asks what's going on, and they all provide some flimsy excuse. He says he's never seen the package, but he needs a hand with something in the bar. Sabrina volunteers, and something unusual happens. There's a beat more air than would be expected usually in this moment. Story, and especially sitcom, is so tied to rhythm and so an occurrence of a misstep like this and an unusual instance of error is worth noting. And in this case, it sort of begins the romantic tension in the relationship between Sabrina and Virgil in its implication that there is something wrinkled, something underneath unseen. This tension is further explored in subsequent episodes, but remains unresolved and uncommented on here by Edelman. There's question, in fact, as to whether this moment was in the script or was an invention of director Moira Armstrong. Much like the Brady Bunch, there seems little indication early on that Bill Craig had any sort of intention of running threads of plot through multiple episodes of Smith's Point, instead favoring the sort of problem of the week death, rebirth, and death module of most sitcoms at the time. And so in this way, Moira Armstrong is sort of responsible for creating the world of Smith's Point when we are not watching it, because now we know that it exists from week to week and not just once and then once again in a new way. 
This lingering is significant then in its non-resolution because it disrupts the comfort of a closed narrative, uh, especially the one that audiences were used to at the time. Although, of course, not many reviewers or scholars clocked this moment except retroactively. Sabrina has Anne Olivia and Melvin swear not to open the package without her, and the scene ends. The next scene is in the library again, and there's a shot of the November book display. Again, there's an establishing shot of Myrna. This time, she's eating a sandwich and reading something. Because of the poor quality of my tape, I couldn't quite make out the title of the book, but it's a pale green book with brown lettering. If anyone's copy of the show is higher quality and you can make out the title, please let me know what it is. CJ storms in, and he goes up to Myrna and says, I'm here about my sister Essie Harris. I'm here to clear her name. And Myrna makes a sour face. There's a back and forth about her innocence, and at one point CJ suggests that maybe the pages fell out in the library. He approaches the book display and says maybe it fell out somewhere there during Halloween. Myrna says, don't touch it. I've worked hard on that. And so CJ backs off. He reaffirms that he knows his sister is innocent and shouldn't be charged. And Myrna softens a bit, but says it's policy. CJ confirms that after the fine is paid, Essie will be able to check out books again. And finally, he digs in his own pocket. He says it's his allowance for the past two months and Myrna clearly feels bad about this, but she anyway accepts the money on Essie's behalf, and then adds that he's a very fine brother to be paying the fine for her. CJ leaves, and there's a shot of Myrna looking at the book display, which it isn't particularly difficult now to guess the resolution to the mystery of where the pages fell out. We now have the conclusion to the Dolly-Essie scene from before, and I believe it is potentially a deleted scene that was edited back in from the box set. This seems to be a common reoccurrence. I'm guessing this because, like the coda of episode one, the quality of this shot is much poorer than the rest of the episode. It is also not narratively entirely necessary, although it does provide another beat in the story of Essie's worry about her parents. Speaking of editing, as far as I can glean, this episode was likely edited by Bill E. Garst, Axel Hubert Sr., or George R. Roars. These are all real names of television editors who worked on the show, and they're all very excellent names. They were all members of the editorial department, and they are first billed in this episode's credits. Garst, Hubert, and Roars were all veterans of the television industry at the time, having worked on projects like McLeod, 77 Sunset Strip, and the Beverly Hillbillies. Bill Garst also did editorial work for Smith's Point's Inspirations, The Brady Bunch, and Petticoat Junction. Essie presses Molly and says, essentially, is she sure she didn't read it? Because she, Essie, really wants to know the ending. Molly says that maybe she did and isn't remembering it. And what follows is an extended monologue from Essie describing the plot of the book, which is 
really interesting in regards to our previous attention to gaze and abstraction, and in regard to the fame of Molly Bloom's closing monologue in Ulysses. We'll speak of Borges later and of his influence on this episode, but there's an interesting connection there, and that Borges translated Ulysses but only the very last page. He thought the rest was sort of silly. Anyway, we are hearing this secondhand story, which is probably not entirely accurate because it's coming from memory, and in that imperfect way receiving the story of the case of the lost lamplight. So there's almost an element of translation, of something lost. And the question is then, of course, does this imperfect reception become the story itself? The book is about a Nancy Drew-esque heroine named Valerie Benn, who is a high school student who solves mysteries in a fictional town in Maine. In this particular book, all the town's lampposts are being extinguished by an unknown figure in a velvet cape. The time period of the book is unclear, but presumably the extinguishing is more electrical than not. It's eventually discovered that this act is a distraction, which allows a second party to rob local businesses. The jeweler, baker, and pharmacy have all been robbed, but there's been no movement towards robbing the town's bank. There are several suspects involved in the case, which Essie mentions includes Valerie herself, but we don't really hear details about the rest of the potential culprits. And so Valerie has, by the end of the novel, collected all these disparate clues, the significance of electricity, the importance of the bakery being robbed, a swatch of plum cashmere that was left at one of the scenes, but she has no connecting thread. And she was on the precipice of revelation, ostensibly, right before the pages went missing. And unfortunately for Essie, Molly says the description didn't jog her memory at all. So Essie decides that she will have to take the blame and ask her parents for a supplement to her allowance so she can pay the fine. It's unclear here initially why CJ's allowance covered the fine, but Essie's didn't. But in later episodes, it will be established that Essie is something of a spendthrift, which is likely the internal justification for this plot device from Sybil Edelman. The conclusion to the episodes takes place in the inn's sitting room. The brown package is on the oak coffee table, and Anne Olivia sits reading the paper while Melvin tinkers with a watch. He has on one of those enormous magnifying monocles, a loaded image for this episode about mystery and inner machination. Essie arrives first and sits down glumly. Anne Olivia asks if she's found the missing pages and she says she hasn't. CJ then arrives and also sits down, also rather glumly. He says he wasn't able to clear Essie's name. Melvin then pauses, looks at the children, and assures Essie that they believe her when she says she did not wreck the book. This, of course, surprises Essie and brightens her mood. She pauses and says, That's all that matters, I guess. This is the closest the episode comes to a kind of moral, outside of the more straightforward Christian brotherly-sisterly love discourse. Essie muses that still, 
She wishes she could know who was the one extinguishing all the lamps. Just then, and in perfect deus ex machina fashion, Luke arrives home. Behind his back is the copy of the book from the high school. Everybody cheers. Essie is obviously especially thrilled, and she asks, You think it has the same ending as my copy? Which results in a laugh track, but is also sort of a Borges-esque philosophical question about the nature of story and authorship, a la Pierre Menard, author of Don Quixote. In a way, no, this book does not have the same ending as her copy. It is a different book. Just as Essie is about to crack open the last few pages and complete the sort of flaming tongues of the great book caper, there's a knock on the door. It's Myrna the librarian, who Marjorie welcomes in, in her, Marjorie's, first appearance in the episode. This was a frequent occurrence with Marjorie, and another potential motivation behind Audra Patride's departure. It appeared that often the writers had a difficult time incorporating her character into the story, particularly because the figure of Sabrina was so distinct and so commanding. Myrna wears the same flannel dress as before, but now she's wrapped in a fabulous rose overcoat and cream scarf. She looks quite contrite, as she says she's come to apologize. She checked the book display and found the missing pages from the case of the lost lamplight, and she felt so badly about it that she's come to return CJ's money in person. This leads to the revelation that CJ paid Essie's fine, which both parents are clearly impressed at, again in a sort of moral, teachable moment way. Essie declares that she has the best family in the world and forgives Myrna, who only responds with another apology. We see that she still feels bad and is not so wicked as we initially perceived her to be. Anne Olivia warmly invites Myrna to stay for dinner, and Myrna accepts. Everyone's in a great mood, and Essie gets up and says, I'll set the table. Anne Olivia asks, don't you want to finish the book? And Essie says, after dinner, I want to do something nice for all of you. And so, like Mal Robbins, there is an atrophy, a loss of interest in the initial mystery, an override. Everybody gets ready to move into the dining room, and Luke sees the coffee table and casually says, Oh, my package, which is, of course, a big to-do for everyone. Anne Olivia and Melvin ask him what could be in it and why he was hiding it under the couch, to which Luke replies, I don't know, maybe it's a gift for you, and he winks. This, of course, only makes everyone want to know more what's in the package, but he doesn't say. And in fact, other than this episode's coda, we'll never hear about this package again. This whole notion of the hidden and unresolved package is also, of course, retroactively read as a sort of commentary on the very character of Luke, and on Jack Neve in a way, by Sybil Edelman, his queer coning his closetedness. None of this has been confirmed, but the package also hasn't been spoken of in the discussions of continuity errors in Smith's Point, which, as we've mentioned, are quite particular. Armistead Maupin, 
in fact, will also briefly reference this package early on in his memoir, Logical Family. He'll write, and this is a quote, And so, like Jack Neve's dilemma after Smith's point, publicly the gift remained wrapped, at least for the time being. This is a sort of mixing of metaphors, of course, which combines the notion of the gift from this episode with Jack Neve's struggle to stay closeted in Hollywood in the years after the show concluded. And the scene fades with a laugh track as the family and Myrna begin to enter the dining room. There's a coda for this episode as well. Luke is in the bedroom he shares with CJ, tucking the package under his bed. He hears a creak and without turning says, Sabrina, who then opens the door sheepishly to a laugh track. This is one mystery you won't solve tonight, he says. And she does sort of an aw shucks gesture which comments on itself. And they both laugh and the episode fades. How interesting, too, that this episode, so tied with mystery, ends almost rather pointedly on an unsolved mystery, on a mystery which will not be revisited, in fact. With this, we end episode two of Smith's Point and episode two of Revisiting Smith's Point. I'm so pleased that you joined me today, and I hope you'll take very good care until the next time.